Welcome to Fault Tolerant. In this episode, I talk with Eric Showers about Ethereum 2. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. How's it going, Eric? Going good. I'm happy to be here. We've... Uh both wanted to do this for a, a long time but um just kind of gotten uh bounced back by uh, other priorities so really happy to finally be talking about this yeah. luckily the uh the research is not outpacing us we're still ahead of uh the uh, developments yeah <laughs> yeah so i've done a lot of reading um since the start of this year on uh on the research and specifications that have come out um and i think this is a good time to uh to record a podcast on this because uh the the phase zero specifications have been frozen into place. So we, we now know that the, the first parts or the first steps of, uh, of ETH 2.0 are now um, a little bit less fuzzy in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so, there, there was a point where you could read, you know, you could spend two hours reading yeah. on GitHub and then the next week it'd be different. Yeah. So basically now it's, a, it's an engineering problem, right? Like the specifications frozen and now people just have to write the code. For the first steps. Uh, yes, there's still yeah. a lot of research going on for the later steps, yeah. Yeah, but phase zero is like good to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. there's, uh, I mean, it's all coming down to the uh, the client teams writing code. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, to get started, um, I wanna first just talk about the roadmap of uh, where the research has come from, where it's going, like what's, what's done and what still needs to be finished. So, um, there was a, I feel like in the Ethereum community, there was a, a sentiment that the goalposts were kind of getting pushed back on this. Um, this is something I want to start with just to address that um, the original plan back in 2014 and 2015 um, was to develop proof of stake first. I mean, that was, that was the main idea of Ethereum as far as I understand. Um, and then sharding just started to become a bigger and bigger topic. Um, so eventually what happened was uh, the, uh, the researchers decided that um, it would be much more effective to uh, develop proof of stake and sharding at the same time, rather than um, produce proof of stake systems and release them and then later do sharding um, because there was, there was just so much overlap between them. Mm-hmm. And that was the original plan, right? They were going to do shard or proof of stake first and then sharding. And I think there were two separate teams working on each of these efforts. Yeah, well, I believe that like sharding wasn't even on the roadmap at the start. Right. Um, I think it I think it came in a little bit later. Right. But up until I think like six or eight months ago, I think there was two teams each working on POS and sharding. And then they were duplicating a lot of work. Yeah. And they decided to merge them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So that's that's why the roadmap feels like it's been pushed back a little bit. Um, it's just because uh, by merging these two, obviously we're delaying the uh, the release of uh, of like the first steps. Mm. Mm-hmm. So um, now we have an updated roadmap, which I'll just touch upon. Uh, I'm sure that most people have seen this already, but. The roadmap for ETH 2.0, or Serenity, as the developers call it, has been split into phases. Um, the first phase is phase zero, the beacon chain. 
phase one will introduce shard chains and phase two will introduce state execution on the shard chains. So by the time phase two is completed, um, we should expect to see a, uh, a new Ethereum system that is can do everything that the current system can do, but has the benefits of proof of stake and sharding. Um, and there is discussion for other phases to follow that, but those are those are distant in the future. So we'll right. cover those today. So do any of those phases include eWASM? Yeah, that would be phase two. Um, okay. State oh, execution. Oh, yeah, yeah, state execution. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, eWASM is one of the new components. Um, the I would I would consider there to be three main components that will be introduced over these three states or phases. So that is uh, proof of stake and sharding are the, the, the two biggest ones. And the third one is eWASM. So that is Ethereum WebAssembly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's just like a new way to specify uh, virtual machine code, I believe. eWASM will be the new Ethereum virtual machine. So it will be taking Solidity or whatever and executing the um, opcodes. But it, Solidity is first compiled into the opcodes, right? Yeah. So then the virtual machine executes those opcodes. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. Or are there new opcodes for a new virtual machine? Well, I imagine that that's going to be what um, the WebAssembly machine actually leads to is just like a, a more flexible um, execution environment mm-hmm. um, or like just easier to go from one virtual machine to the other um, and also a more consistent implementation across clients. Um, so that the the actual implementation of the virtual machine will be um, very similar, even though the clients are in different languages. Right. Yeah. So we'll get into that more once we actually discuss uh, phase two. Yeah. And then lastly on the roadmap, um, there is a, a researcher named Danny Ryan had a, a cool summary of design goals for Serenity. So I thought I'd thought mm-hmm. I'd just cover those. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, what is that, five? No, six. No, five of them. Uh, decentralization. A typical consumer laptop um, should be able to process or validate um, one shard. Um, resilience. Um, the system should be able to remain live even if large portions of nodes go offline. Uh, security. Um, the uh the cryptographic techniques involved should allow for a, a large number of participants in total and like at one time. Uh, simplicity, that uh, complexity, complexity should be minimized even if it means the cost of some losses in efficiency. And longevity, that um, all components are either quantum secure or can be swapped out for quantum secure com- counterparts when available. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so I think these are, I mean, these are pretty ambitious design goals, um, mm-hmm. but I, I think that they uh, they kind of summarize everything. So let's, uh, let's get into it. Um, before I start covering the phases, uh, I thought it'd be helpful to do a recap on the, those two main components, proof of stake and sharding. Mm-hmm. Um, not to actually get into the, uh, 
the uh, the details of of their implementation here, but um, to talk about like the uh, the bigger ideas of why proof of stake and why sharding. So for proof of stake, um, the uh, the main idea behind proof of stake is that validators vote on blocks, and the weight of their vote depends on the size of their stake. The uh, the benefits of this that are proposed is that there'll be uh, less consumption of electricity, therefore uh, lower inflation and transaction fees required for the stability and security of the blockchain. Other benefits are that it's it's harder for large scale operations to gain advantages with staking. Um, there's just less uh, economies of scale involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there should be no economies of scale, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, because um, with mining. Um, there's a lot of that involved with a, with ASICs, and I mean it's it's more efficient yeah. to run a mining farm with five thousand ASICs than it is to run one in your bedroom. Yeah, and it's also highly geographically dependent. Like if you can't get cheap electricity where you live, you might actually just lose money mining. So all the mining right. moves to one region, China. Yeah. So I mean, with proof of stake, the idea is that a ten thousand dollar stake will have only uh, 10 times higher return than a $1,000 stake. Um, and I, I mean, I think this has to do with the fact that uh, the major asset involved with staking is not computational hardware, but the cryptographic asset that you're staking. And well, I'll elaborate again. Um, one more benefit for proof of stake that I think is really important is uh, security against like, a wider variety of uh, attacks. Um, just by the uh, kind of the uh, the wide array of game theory mechanisms that are that are included with proof of stake um, that you can't get with proof of work. A big one, um, big example of that would be penalties. That um, in proof of stake, uh, validators are actually tied to an identity, and therefore they can be penalized if they um, have behaviors that are considered uh, wrong. Mm -hmm. So. Vlad Zamfir, one of the main researchers on proof of stake, has a good quote that says, it's as though your ASIC farm burned down if you participated in a 51% attack. So there's there's a lot of attack behaviors that can actually be identified and like proven that they occurred um, in hindsight. Yeah, and contrast with proof of work, if you buy a bunch of hardware and try to conduct or successfully conduct a 51% attack, then you still keep your hardware. And I don't think there's really anything anyone can do. They, I th Vitalik's talked about this before. You can, the protocol developers can change the algorithm and maybe go from a, like to a more general algorithm, uh, one that doesn't require, or that doesn't use those ASICs. So you have this big ASIC farm, you do an attack, they can change the algorithm, uh, and then your ASICs are no longer useful. But then if you're just on, if the mining is now done with general hardware, they and you do another attack, you get a buy a bunch of general purpose hardware, then they can't fork away again. They'd have to develop a brand new algorithm to, right. to deal with each attack, which is obviously gonna be difficult. Because then the whole, mining community also has to change which is going to be expensive right yeah and it, i think the uh 
the main comparison that I'd give there as well is that um, to actually punish the, the the attackers in that proof of work scenario that you gave um, does require like a, a very complex um, change to the consensus rules, um, a hard fork and all that. Whereas with proof of stake, the uh, the the penalty given to the attackers um, is can be actually part of the consensus rules. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, just just by the fact that, as I said before, the main asset involved with validation is the uh, the the currency itself. Yeah, so that's that's proof of stake. Um, and uh, next, I'll do recap on sharding. Um, so sharding is a proposed solution to the uh, the blockchain uh, trilemma. Now, the blockchain trilemma is a, a kind of an idea that floats around where um, you can have decentralization, um, scalability, and security for a blockchain system, but you, you only really get two of those. So um, decentralization being that um, each participant only needs uh, like a small laptop uh, so that um, you don't need like super computation in order to actually participate. Uh, scalability is that the system is able to process many transactions. Um, and security is that it's secure against uh, attackers up to like with a certain amount of resources available. Mm-hmm. So the, the trilemma says that you can only have two of these. Um, and we see a lot of examples of this, right? Like EOS um, managed to get greater uh, scalability by sacrificing decentralization. So sharding is a solution to the trilemma. So you're not just picking two. You get all of them, right? Yeah, so um, sharding is an uh, attempt to get all three. Yeah. So to uh, to break it down a little bit, um, the idea of sharding is to um, break apart the the blockchain state and transaction activity, so that um, the effect of transactions that are occurring in one shard are limited to that shard only. Um, so this. Uh, just kind of like partitions the whole network um, to uh, to achieve the uh, the scalability that it needs. So uh, currently, each node on the Ethereum blockchain has to store the entire state for all accounts and it has to process all transactions. Therefore, the uh, the Ethereum blockchain cannot process more transactions than a single node can. So there's a lot of parallel um, activity going in going into that, right? So sharding proposes to to harness that um or break apart that the parallel computing right right so the idea is there's right now it's like there's one cpu with one core Mm -hmm. and everything that ethereum does goes through that single cpu Mm -hmm. and really this single cpu is split up across every node in the network but it's logically one cpu because it's they're all just doing the same thing. They're mm-hmm. all just replicating uh, the work of that like one logical CPU. And then with sharding, it's like you split that up into say a thousand logical CPUs where each of those have whatever, say a thousand uh, nodes. And within one of those logical CPUs, those all those thousand nodes they're all doing the same thing they're all just 
copying each other essentially. Mm-hmm. But the whole the system as a whole is now um, parallelized and has a thousand cores. Right. Yeah. The main problem that uh, sharding has come into um, so far, I think, with because. I'm not sure if there's any blockchain systems that have actually released with sharding, but um, I mean, the main problem that they face in research early on is that uh, it's really hard to break apart the state like that without also um, basically sharding the security. So if you take one blockchain and turn it into a thousand blockchains, um, each one of those blockchains has like a one one thousandth scale of uh, security. So it, it takes significantly less resources to attack each chain individually. Um, so that's that's been the main issue as far as I know. Mm-hmm. And Ethereum, with Ethereum 2, aren't they trying to solve that? Like, I think I read that there should be no decrease in security by sharding the system. I think each shard maintains a security of the whole system. Yeah, that's that's my understanding. Yeah. Um, I think that the uh, I think the Beacon chain introduces a, a really clever solution to uh, to uh, maintaining high security on each shard. Right. Mm-hmm. And the other problem with sharding is the cross shard communication. Right. Right. Yeah, that's an important point as well. Is that um, since uh, validators for one shard are only really processing transactions on their shard. Um, they have no awareness of state outside of that shard, um, so that can make that can make some things quite difficult. For example, um, let's say that there's there's one application that is just so popular that it basically takes up a whole shard by itself. Imagine CryptoKitties, right? Um, so all the transactions on the shard are just related to one application. But what if that application has to interface with any other system? Um, it will need to have communication across shards, to right. to some degree, um, because it's a uh, it's quite unlikely that um, there'll be any like useful applications that can exist on their own. Yeah, and that's what the beacon chain is for, right? Yeah, the beacon chain does provide or that as well. That's one of the functions of the beacon chain is to f- facilitate the cross shard communication. Right. right. Yeah. The important point is just that. Um, even if you have the the same security on all shards, as we said, um, if you don't have a way to um, connect between the shards, uh, it's still hard to uh, to get a lot of value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in a similar idea though, uh, I would expect that um, we do still see that kind of organization where. Um, really popular applications um, start to dominate certain shards or um, like several applications related to uh, like a particular domain will will all be on uh, the same shards so that they're able to connect really, really easily because there still will be a uh, certain amount of friction going between shards that just doesn't exist um, going between accounts on a, a single shard. Yeah, this is something I'm actually wondering quite a bit about. I'm not sure if how much you know about this or how much has even been figured out, but I really wonder how cross-shard communication is going to impact performance. Like, what kind of lag? Because it's mostly going to be a lag, right? Like a, a delay in getting some data 
or a delay in completing a transaction. If it needs to hit some contract on another shard, then it's just going to take a bit longer. But how much longer? <laughs> Do we know? Right. Yeah. No, this is um, this all falls into phase two territory. Mm, yeah, so yeah. it's it's hard to speak uh, with any like specifics. Yeah. 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 yeah I wonder. I, I really wonder about it, though, because I I just wonder how to like play the devil's advocate against Ethereum. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a lot of criticisms that are not very good. But this is one that I wonder about is if we have a sharded system and let's say it takes like 30 seconds to do a cross shard communication. That seems not very good. <laughs> <laughs> like that would kind of worry me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, have no, I have no idea what it will actually turn out to be, but yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not too worried about it. Um, and a big reason for that is that I think that the, uh, the processing power of a single shard will still be very high. So I think that the um, the reasons for actually going cross shard will won't be mm -hmm. like you won't have to do it very often. But um, then, do we have to like segment things into their own little worlds? Like, if you're building, do you have like say you develop some decentralized finance app, and it's going to use uh, maybe a couple things from one shard and a couple from a different shard. Where do you put your app? Or are all of them going to try and be in one shard? But that seems hard because you can't really choose where you put your stuff, can you? You can't choose a shard, I don't think. I, mm, Maybe you can. I think, uh, yeah, I think you might be able to. Okay. Yeah. And then if you, like, would all of the DeFi stuff go in one shard? That seems like it can't happen. Because <laughs> <laughs> then if 90% if of the traffic is in with DeFi apps and mm -hmm. then all the DeFi apps are in one shard, then you're not going to get thousand x speed up, right? You're going to get like nothing speed up. Right. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. Um, and I don't expect I don't know. you to know the answers. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just talking. Yeah. I don't have a lot of answers to that, but. Um, That's right. I'm sure people are working on it. <laughs> yeah. This does all fall into the domain of like phase two, where mm, yeah. uh, there's just not a lot solidified yet, and we'll we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, later. Yeah, so um, now that we've kind of recapped proof of stake and sharding, uh, I think we can just jump straight into phase zero. So phase zero is uh, all about the beacon chain. Um, I think it's uh, it's set to begin next year, uh, 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I think this is the, conceptually, this is the most important phase to understand, uh, to get a sense of where this is all going. So the beacon chain is um, is a pretty new idea in this whole discussion in Ethereum. I believe it just came about like uh, last year, like last summer basically, is when it actually got uh, large adoption in the research community. So the uh, the beacon chain is um, the the proof of stake blockchain that manages validators and their stakes. Um, it can like conceptually can kind of be uh, considered the the center of everything where um, if you want to draw it you would just draw the beacon chain as a dot in the middle and then a big wheel of shard chains around the uh, the outside that all connect to the beacon chain in the middle mm -hmm. so the uh, some of the the uh, the things that the beacon chain does is uh, it organizes validators into committees it nominates block proposers 
um, and it applies rewards and penalties to validators. So that's that's why it's like the the root of the system, right? Um, all of the the proof of stake um, messaging and voting all happens in the beacon chain, and that's where that's where validator balances are, are held. So in the like Ethereum two system, the beacon chain is going to serve those functions. It's going to organize validators, nominate block producers, and do the rewards and penalties. So in phase zero though, does it do that stuff? It doesn't really do that stuff in phase zero, right? Uh, well, yes it does. I mean, okay. like, uh, like there will be validators in mm-hmm. phase zero. But, so th- we were talking about this before we were recording. Mm-hmm. Um, the, in phase zero, there's no, like the beacon chain won't be doing any, so the beacon chain never does any execution of transactions or anything. It just coordinates stuff. It coordinates uh, the shards, right? Yes. Um, like there are transactions in a sense though. Um, there's just like, there's no like, you know, Turing complete scripting language or anything like that. Um, right. The beacon chain is going to have a set of like specific transactions that it can, that can do such as like creating a stake or withdrawing a stake. Mm. So, okay. The beacon chain coordinates the shards eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, in phase zero, there's not going to be any shards, right? No. Okay. So, but eventually the beacon chain is going to coordinate the shards. There's going to be a set. It's going to help figure out who should be validating in each shard, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it's also going to be determining who should be validating for itself in its own chain, right? Because the beacon chain has to organize and order some transactions, which help it to coordinate the shards, mm-hmm. right? And the beacon chain has its own set of validators, right? Distinct from a thousand other little tribes, which are the each for the shards. Mm, n- no, I don't think that the, uh, the validators are not distinct. Oh. I don't believe so. Um, there's just there's a validator set, and uh, all of the validators belong to the beacon chain's validator set. So all of the validators that are validating in the shards are also working for the beacon chain. Uh, yes, I'm quite certain that that's that's the way it works. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so the. Uh, I mean, that's that's one reason why the beacon chain is so lightweight compared right. to the shard chains. But so there, there's a pool. Let's say there's a thousand shards and each shard has a hundred um, validators. Mm-hmm. So there's a hundred thousand validators. Then for the beacon chain, someone has to do the work of validating and dealing with the, the blocks and transactions for the beacon chain. So it takes from those 100,000 validators and grabs, let's say, 100 of them, right? That are like randomly selected from those 100,000 from those shard validators. And so there's some validators who are doing like two jobs. Is that right? (laughs) No, I'm pretty sure that all the validators um, work on the beacon chain Uh, and then they also work on their respective shards. Right, but they don't all do work for the beacon chain every epoch or every block, right? So 
as a validator, like let's say I'm a validator in a shard, mm-hmm. I'm presumably going to be voting on every shard, every block in my shard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then am I also voting on every single block in the beacon chain? Um, well, yeah, I guess I should clarify that I don't think you're doing all of that all the time. But um, I don't think that there's like there's there's just a validator role. There's mm-hmm. not uh, there's not like little specific roles that you could validate the beacon chain all the time or validate a shard all the time. Right. Um, and that's part of what the beacon chain does is organize who's doing what. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, if this helps clarify, I think that the part of the the nomination is to to pick, you know, who is proposing blocks for the beacon chain at what time and who's going to be voting on them uh, right. and then assigning committees to deal with shards. So the pool, like, so you have this pool of validators. So we're, we're assuming that all the validators are the same, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but a validator may be in one shard or another shard. Yeah. And you don't validate for other shards. No. Only for your own shard. Yeah. Only your own. And so part of the job of the beacon chain is to determine who the validators are, right? Because there's like a pool of people who, is there, is it the case that there's, there's like a big pool of people who are staking and who are willing to validate. And then the beacon chain, it randomly selects a subset of them, or does it randomly assign all of them to a shard, you know? Yeah, I think it's better thought of that it randomly assigns all of them. Um, right. So it shuffles. It just shuffles the whole set of people across to different shards. Yeah, and um, I think uh, I think there's a big point here that we can that we can make that um, it, it you know by taking all of the uh, validators that are eligible to validate with a you know big enough stakes and and shuffling them into all the shards. This is this is a part of the clever solution that allows the shards to have um, such high security um, because you right. don't you don't get to pick yeah. what shard you're validating uh, and you you can't predict what shard you're going to be validating. So mm-hmm. um, even though the um, you know if you have a thousand shards or let's say a hundred it's an easier number to say <laughs> um, if you have a hundred shards even though the like the proportional stake of each shard is one one hundredth of the whole system um, in order to uh, actively collude with the other validators of your shard um, statistically you would still need to uh, to get like a, a massive collusion for the entire system in order to control a single shard yeah because you uh you don't know which shard you're going to end up on. Yeah. Yeah, it's like if you wanted to ensure that you would like probabilistically have 60% of the stake in any shard, the only way to do that, assuming the randomness works, is to uh, own 60% of the stake total. Mm -hmm. Because then when it's randomly shuffled, you should on average have 60% in every shard, Mm -hmm. which is is good from a security requirement because that would be really expensive. Yeah, okay. Um, I probably should have done this a little bit earlier, but I'm going to just cover uh, three quick terms mm-hmm. um, okay. to clarify some of the uh, the components here. So a validator is a participant in the consensus. They're registered in the beacon chain. 
So they have an account and a balance on the, the beacon chain. And they their job is to propose and attest to blocks, um, uh, as well as voting for crosslinks. So next step, of course, is what's a crosslink? Um, crosslink is a an attestation from a committee to a shard block, which may be included in the beacon chain. So um, all of the validators for a shard will um, vote for their, their next shard block. Uh, that's called an attestation. Um, and once they all agree on what the next shard block is, that has the opportunity to be included in the beacon chain. And if it does, this is called a crosslink. Um, so this is how the beacon chain discovers about uh, discovers uh, updates to a shard state. Right. Um, and the validators for a shard are always voting on the next shard block. Um, they're just not always included in the beacon chain. Right. So as a validator, I'm obviously voting on every block in the shard that I'm in. And is every shard sent to the beacon chain as a crosslink or every uh, block in, in my shard? Or isn't it every like fifth block or something? Uh, no, not quite. Like, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a, a static um, amount. Do you know if it's every, but it's not every block, is it? No, no, it's not every block. I mean, that's, that's kind of the whole point is that the crosslinks yeah. only happen every once in a while. Um, right. but the, sh the, the shard state is only kind of checked into the beacon chain every once in a while compared to how often it's actually updated on the shard. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's every, on average or whatever, maybe it's every 10th block, we get a crosslink into the beacon chain. Mm -hmm. And is it the case that other shards don't know anything about my, sh my shard until there's a crosslink put into the beacon chain? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So... so um and since all the validators are aware of the beacon chain, that's how you go from one shard to the other. Mm -hmm. So if I want to know, if I'm in shard A, and I want to know the, the state of an account in shard B, I look to the beacon chain, and I see that there's a crosslink, and I just look at that crosslink, and that's where I get my uh, information from. But it might be out of date, right? In a sense, right? Yeah, like it might be it might be a bit behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that this is uh, the crosslinks are will be an area where there there'll be a lot of like clever solutions of uh, cryptographic proofs come into play, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, the crosslink will just be like a, a Merkle root of the whole shard state, probably. Yeah. Um, and yeah, what will have to happen is that if you're on shard one. And you you crosslink at a certain point, uh, and shard two needs to know about the state. You could send them a bit of data that says like, "Oh, my account in shard one had this much ether uh, in the crosslink," and with uh, with the the Merkle root, they can prove that that set of data was a part of the whole state of the shard. Yeah. Um. So you you can do kind of cool things with that. Yeah. yeah. So the shards will be prob if if there's any cross shard communication required the shards are going to have to be gossiping the the state information to each other and then if i'm getting some data from you um 
I either might not have any copy of the state of your shard, in which case I'll need, I guess, your whole history, or at least I'll need, actually all you would need is the full, the state as it is now, and then I would just need to validate that that all hashes down to the root, which is in the, in the beacon chain. Because mm -hmm. if it does, then I know you're telling the truth. I don't need your whole history. Right, and yeah. you, you don't even need the full state um, to verify all the time. Right, right. So that's the whole Merkle thing. Yeah, because I can I could just give you a branch, uh, yeah. and you can yeah. verify that it's part of the tree, Yeah, which is really, really cool. That is cool. Yeah, so, uh, and one last little term here, um, committee. I've said it a few times. Um, the committee is just a, a pseudo-randomly sampled subset of validators. So validators vote in committees, uh, and their placement in those committees is random, as you said earlier. Okay, one other thing, too, that, that you mentioned uh, before we were recording is the beacon chain is where the ether lives, which I didn't know. So from my understanding is if you have any ether in the entire Ethereum 2 system, it will, that state will be in the beacon chain, not mm -hmm. in a shard, right? Yeah, so Ether being like the, the fundamental asset of the system, um, it's, all, it's all tracked on the beacon chain. And then to move ETH to a specific shard, you lock it in, a con I guess, a contract on the beacon chain, right? You have to lock it up there, and then it gets created in the shard chain, kind of like how Plasma works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it'll. I hope it's a little bit clearer once we cover shard chains and their execution. But right. um, yeah, and that's uh, part of that as well. Is that um, I think once state like state execution is working on shard chains, um, it's not going to be the case where every account on every shard is an account on the beacon chain, um, because users will just create accounts on a shard chain. Um, and they'll get their ether from that like existing shard ecosystem. So it's it's not really the case that all the ether is only on the beacon chain, and then you to use it on a shard, you have to like lock it up and get it created on the shard. It's more it, that's like one way to do it, I guess. You could just start on a shard and just live on the shard, and I guess you could. If you had Ether on the shard, you could also bring it to the beacon chain by the same, you know, the opposite direction that it was brought in in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah, likely. I mean, uh, the way I think of it is that, like, I I own some Ether, but I didn't actually mine it. I didn't get it from, like, the, the fundamental consensus protocol. I just bought it from Coinbase, mm -hmm. right? So... Um, to think about uh, sharding and where Ether actually lives, um, it'd be more like like Coinbase already owns a bunch of Ether. Uh, they put it on a shard, and then when I buy Ether from them, I'm on that shard. But um, like at no point does my account exist on the Beacon Chain, or at no point is my balance actually represented on the Beacon Chain, unless I want to go through the trouble of leaving that shard. Right, and probably to go to a different shard you would need to exit onto the beacon chain and then onto that other shard, right? Yeah, I believe that's that's the way it looks right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so let's let's move on from phase zero. I mean, we already uh, we already jumped ahead quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> That'll happen. But, um, so that's the beacon chain. Um, that will be uh, launching next year. 
Um, but uh, let's skip ahead to, to phase one, shard chains. Uh, this will be the, uh, the next step um, when we actually start seeing the validator committees doing stuff with shards. So the, in phase one, the primary concern is the uh, construction, validity, and consensus of, of the data on shard chains. Um, so in phase one, there's no specification for state execution or account balances or anything like that. It's, uh, it's really just a trial run of the, uh, the structure rather than an attempt to actually use shards to scale the system. In phase, so in phase zero, sorry to go back to phase zero, mm -hmm. um, we have the beacon chain and we're not really going to get any scalability we're not going to get a whole lot out of the beacon chain, right? No, I like I would say that we barely even get functionality uh, as compared to what we see t today on proof of work. Right. So it's still the system is, and I think I, sh I should have mentioned this earlier, but I think the beacon chain is going to start as like a little offshoot on the existing proof of work chain. It's going to be like like a contract, I think. Right. It's just a contract where you can send your ETH and you become a validator on the beacon chain. And I think I read that the beacon chain will do some finality. It'll finalize blocks on the proof of work chain, but it kind of just to test it. Right, yeah. But yeah, so there's not, phase zero doesn't actually do a whole lot to the end user experience. No, yeah, it, I would say um, it does nothing unless you're a validator, unless you're like actively participating in the beacon chain. Um, it doesn't right. doesn't really provide any additional functionality. Yeah. The That's why like in the beacon chain, we have validator committees, but they're not really doing much. Um, yeah, so phase zero is, it's mostly about proof of stake in phase zero, but it's creating the proof of stake system and, and engineering it such that the uh, the sharding system can then be implemented on top of it. Right, and then in phase one, we get the we hook up the shard chains to the existing beacon chain. Mm -hmm. At this point, the beacon chain is running properly, hopefully, and now we just plug in these shard chains, but we haven't actually sharded the system yet, effectively, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, um, not not in like a, a functional way, um, so. Yeah, so in phase one, you are going to have um, shard chains that have blocks that are being voted on and, you know, classic, like normal blockchains as we know them. Um, but they they will be getting cross-linked to the beacon chain now. So each shard will have um, finality in the beacon chain um, and it'll have a, a continuous history like that. The, the main reason why there's no additional functionality introduced here is because the beacon or sorry, the shard chain blocks um, are really just going to be arbitrary data without structure or meaning. Um, I mean, that's, that's the way it looks right now for the phase one specification is that uh, no, no one's proposing to, to actually uh, like introduce new features with those blocks yet. Mm. They just want to get that structure. Um, secure first right now I, I have seen some proposals uh of like systems that could be built on those arbitrary uh blocks of data um especially just like data availability engines mm -hmm. um 
but I wouldn't expect to see a whole lot of progress with that, mainly because those arbitrary data blocks is a, it's like a temporary structure. So I, I don't expect a whole lot of research to go into like how to use them for useful things. Yeah. Um, if they're just going to, uh, yeah, go away. Yeah. Once phase two comes into, comes yeah. into play. So phase zero, we get the beacon chain hooked up to the proof of work chain and we have a bunch of validators on there and they're not really doing that much. Then we hook up the shard chains and they're not really doing too much, <laughs> but the whole like framework's being built, right? Yeah. So phase zero, the, sh the beacon chain, we like it gets set up and you get it working. And then when you hook up the shard chains, they're effectively doing everything they would do in the real scenario in mm -hmm. the end game, but they just, they're just doing it with arbitrary data. Yeah. Instead of real data. Yeah, so this, right. they're still going through the whole process of uh, of like proposing shard blocks of what the next block will be, and then uh, voting and coming to consensus within their committees. Um, they're doing the whole process of cross-linking to the beacon chain, and the beacon chain is still doing everything it has it, it had set up in uh, phase zero. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So once that phase is complete, um, it's all set up perfectly for phase two. This will be the final phase of the, the main suite of uh, additions here. Um, because now that you have uh, shard chains with, with data in them, you can introduce the state execution. So uh, now in phase two, the shard chains get to transition from simple data containers to structured chain state um, where uh, smart contracts can be reintroduced and we can start rebuilding the uh, um, the vision of what we have today, but in uh, a sharded system. So, so the uh, each shard will um, manage a, a virtual machine based on WebAssembly, as we, we talked about early, earlier. Um, there'll be accounts and contracts and transactions and all those things we're fam familiar with. Um, but uh, as I have mentioned before, um, phase two is far enough away right now that uh, there's not um, there's not a lot of like uh, mm -hmm. freezing or locking down the specifications so there's still a lot of like big ideas floating around around right. the, this phase um, including um, like stateless clients so this idea is about having um, shards actually not um, not having like mandatory state to be stored um, and that that would be interesting because it means that um, shard validators don't need to hold their the state for the shard. Uh, they could validate without it. That's mm -hmm. a pretty that's a pretty big idea. Right. Um, there's other ideas where each shard, um, the virtual machine would actually be specified by a contract that's stored on the beacon chain, um, and that would that would allow shards to have completely different execution environments. So you could have one shard that's exactly as uh, Ethereum 1.0 is today, while having another shard that is based on a UTXO model like Bitcoin. You could even have another shard that's based on whatever the the new Libra virtual machine is, <laughs> right? So that, that's a pretty big idea as well. Um, but each shard would still, like it would still use the same 
proof of stake system, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But just a different virtual machine. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the the virtual machine specifies um, like the state transition function of the shard itself, but uh, the consensus model is the exact same. So they all have the the, the same consensus model, right. but uh, state transition can be different, of course. Right. And then, do you know what the long-term vision is with uh, layer two? Because it, the shards kind of sound like plasma chains. I know they're not. Right. But they seem similar. And then are we going to have all these shards and then also plasma chains on the ends of, like, it's like a double sharded system, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I think that plasma chains are are interesting in the sense that they they feel to me like a, a more a primitive version of sharding where it's like you know like it's kind of like a sharded system except for all the chains are um are managed in a, a centralized way right or they and with plasma i don't think as far as i know if you you can't really do cross chain communication with plasma so with with sharding, you have the beacon chain coordinating and allowing the shards to communicate. With plasma, I don't know if you can do that. I well, know to move to move any any assets, you would have to exit the chain and then enter the other chain. Um, but I, I guess you could do that. Yeah, you could do crosslinks with with the proof of work chain and plasma chains on top of it. You could do crosslinks in a very similar way, where the plasma chain just like commits. Um, like a, its state to the proof of work chain, and I then think that's actually what they do, right? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the main thing that I see is that with the with the the sharding and the 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 proof of stake system is that um, the shards are are much more um, like fluid in a way. And I think the shards they rely on the security of the main chain. Mm-hmm. Whereas beacon chains, like the security is sort of, they all share the security. Mm-hmm. It's kind of distributed across all of them. It's not like you're just piggybacking off of one other chain, which I think in Plasma you are. Like if you can, if you, to to do an attack on a Plasma chain, you just have to attack the main chain, I think. And if you can, if you can, revert something or do a 51% attack or whatever on the main chain, then you can alter the state on the plasma chains. Right. Well, that that will be the same case for the, the beacon chain with uh, Serenity, though. Right. Um, I mean, if yeah, you're able so. to attack the beacon chain and uh, and revert the, the chain, um, you would effectively be attacking all the shards at once. Right. Yeah. To me, the the main difference between plasma and and sharding, I mean, is I don't know. I'm having a hard time um, putting the words to this, but the 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 shards are just kind of like fluidly um, handled by the validator set. I mean, um, I think that there there's going to be a lot more research into load balancing. I mean, we got into this conversation at the start of the episode about. Um, like where different applications will go um, and what's to stop all the applications from trying to live on one shard. 
Um, so load balancing will give a better idea of why the, the shards are more fluid than plasma chains. But, mm. um, you know, there'll, there'll be a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, um, like algorithms put in place for load balancing in the sense that, you know, um, each shard and the each shard will will charge transaction fees and, and gas according to the activity on the shard. So uh, right. the more activity we see concentrating on a single shard means the higher the price it'll go and the more pressure there is to migrate to other shards. Yeah, I guess maybe the, well, I'm sure there'll be some natural load balancing that happens because yeah, if, if people like you, you kind of want to all be on one shard sort of like it would make your application faster if everything it interacts with is on that shard mm -hmm. but the more activities on there the higher the cost is going to be and you know there's some equilibrium maybe there's an equilibrium per application right where some applications will tolerate a higher fee so they'll maybe live on a a shard that has more activity but it also has the contracts they want to interact with but then other shards I could, yeah, I could see that happening. Like other yeah. shards, maybe there's definitely use cases where you don't really care about the leg mm -hmm. or you care a lot less. Like even sending regular transactions, if I'm sending money to someone like a friend, it doesn't matter if it takes like 10 minutes, not really, unless it's urgent. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm sending like a million dollars to, if I'm sending a lot of money somewhere, I can probably tolerate a longer wait. So then maybe those kinds of applications move to the less crowded shards. It'll right. be really interesting to see. <laughs> I'm really excited for Ethereum too. It's going to be a crazy to see how all this stuff works. Yeah, I I expect there to be um, like shard hierarchy. And I, I haven't read that much into research about like uh, how the shards will actually interact and like how the load balancing will go. But I would expect, yeah, there to be a hierarchy of some sort where there are certain shards where transactions are more exp expensive because those are just like the clumpings of uh, the, the big important players. Um, and then there's other shards where there's just uh, not as much demand for activity on them. Hmm. Um, I, I would expect it more to be like there's a, a handful of, of like highly demanded shards for activity and then the rest of them are kind of homogenous. Um, like I it'd be kind of weird if there's like one or two shards that have a lack of activity on them in that way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I could imagine the things that re that need the super low latency, mm -hmm. like huddle together on one shard maybe, or I don't know. It's not really going to be any. Well, I think the latency will be the same across all shards though. Like just because the consensus model will be the same. And right. I think latency is tied to that. The, the main thing that will change in my mind is the fees. But I mean, if if they're all on one shard, mm -hmm. that's minimal latency between those things. Right, yeah. Right. So yeah, but if interacting across from any shard, shard A and B, mm -hmm. or for any shard I and J, mm -hmm. the, the latency should be the same. For any two right. shards communicating, the latency should be the same. Right, yeah. Yeah, so I think that, um, like if we look at today's ecosystem, the the biggest uh, the biggest like or the the most valuable use cases seem to be um, the decentralized finance and exchanges, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I think those more expensive use cases also ha 
have a uh, sorry the more valuable use cases also have um, more higher higher needs for latency that kind of thing right like I I would expect to see um, like li- liquidity providers and decentralized exchanges will want to be on uh, similar shards right because you, you just you won't be able to communicate cross shard when when you need it right but, but yeah. uh, but the there might not be a need for um, having like more than one decentralized exchange on the same shard. Right. It, it depends. I mean, I yeah. think that uh, I think that there is a conversation as well about um, which of these systems uh, will actually need to be like global in a sense. I don't mean like geographically global, but global mm-hmm. as in yeah. available to like all account space. Because yeah, I guess I was gonna say you could have. Why not just put your contract on a bunch of different shards? But the state is what matters, right? Yeah, like if you're a uh, uh, decentralized exchange, you kind of want all of the uh, the balances to be on the same shard, so that if you have two accounts that are gonna trade, yeah, you don't have to do cross shard communication hmm. before the the trade executes. Did we cover everything? There is to know about Ethereum too. Yeah, well, I think I think we gave a pretty good overview. I hope that yeah. it wasn't too jumbled, but um, yeah, well, that's probably my fault, but you can't help it. <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> just the way it goes, you know. It's like it's not clear in my mind yet at all. So um, yeah, we just have to jump around. At least I have to. Right? Yeah. I, I, I don't. I mean, I don't blame you. And I've I've spent quite a bit of time reading this, and I don't feel like I have a solid idea of uh, what everything's going to look like. And I think that should be expected, though. Um, yeah. I mean, try not to have too much anxiety over that because um, a lot of it's just not decided yet, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's the reason for breaking this up into phases is to identify um, that you know there are some components that we're very confident are. Um, are like on track to be completed, um, and that they're they're ready to service the the later unknowns of Serenity. Yeah. So that's like phase zero, and we have a really good idea of what we want the beacon chain to look like, what we want it to do, so that when we get to phase one and two, we don't suddenly have to restructure the beacon chain, right? So that that's pretty cool. I think that um, it's just it's weird because you know the beacon chain doesn't give us everything, so it's that leaves us up for a lot of imagination still. Yeah. Yeah. I do like the approach that that they're taking though. It seems really smart to keep the existing system running and like build in parallel the new system in phases Mm -hmm. and then kind of increase the functionality little by little until it works. And then I think with the proof of work chain there, I don't think, I don't think they know what they're going to do with it yet, Mm -hmm. but you might just migrate everyone to the new one and then just let the old one die or whatever. But it seems like a smart way to do it rather than, you know, trying to modify the existing system and like make, uh, like fork it, hard fork it. You know, like if we were forking, hard forking the beacon chain, like into the existing system and making like a breaking change, that Mm -hmm. would be scary. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's interesting that like the uh, there's two criticisms that I hear a lot. 
for Ethereum that I don't think are very compatible. That there, there's a lot of criticism that the research isn't moving fast enough. Uh, and then this criticism that Ethereum changes too fast. <laughs> yeah. And I think that this roadmap uh, is an excellent compromise between the two. I mean, the, the phases gives like a um, a pretty strongly defined um, like development sequence. Like it's at this point, it's hard to to extend the roadmap other than just delaying the phases a little bit. You know, mm. you can't you can't suddenly put on the brakes and say, um, oh, we're you know we're going to we're going to introduce like two new major components that need to be researched for another four years, right? Um, because because we have the roadmap laid laid out. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Uh, what year will the Ethereum two sharded proof of stake be live? <laughs> I'm gonna be pretty careful with this one, but uh, it's a tough one. <laughs> Remember, it's it's software development, so. Whatever you're thinking, double it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I to be safe, I would say uh, 2023. Um, That's kind of soon. <laughs> yeah, but it also feels like far away. Yeah. I'm sure that there's a lot of people who would respond to that, saying that it's too late, and that by then um, it will all be uh, obsolete or just like, you know, irrelevant. But <laughs> Libra will be dominating the world. Right. Yeah. But um, it, yeah, in other, in another sense, it also feels very soon. All right, thanks a lot for coming on, Eric. Um, this is possibly the last episode of this podcast. But anyway, we will let you know if Eric or I start a new podcast or get up to anything cool like that. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.